This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Overly accurate CGI. Childhood scares. The Toronto Mystery Tunnel. And Charlemagne versus Irmansoul. Gasoline, hang gliders, marshmallows, spandex. That's the worst shopping list I've ever heard. I think you mean the best. Oh, you're talking about Mad Scientist University. I had a feeling we should be talking about Atlas Games at this point in the show. Mad Scientist University is a card game that's exactly like going back to school. Right, because there's an insane assignment and each player has to make it happen using a different unstable element. Like trying to find a willing sacrifice before the next full moon using a hang glider. Or write your name on the moon with beef jerky. Or find Atlantis with tongs. Beef jerky might be better for that. Probably. Uh, Once everyone's mad plans have been hatched and their details described, the group's TA picks the best one. The TA can use whatever arbitrary criteria they choose. Without fear of being fired, it's just like tenure. That evil genius in training who's chosen wins the round. That sounds easier than the thing with a hang glider. Here's the great news. If you buy Mad Scientist University right now, Atlas Games will throw in the Spring Break expansion for free. That's 52 cards perfect for helping you plan that truly unforgettable trip to Mexico. And if you're in the U.S., they'll pay for shipping too. Does Atlas Games hate people outside the U.S.? Not at all. That's why they're offering cut-rate shipping for those folks, too. Now, just like a university essay, we will sum up by telling you what we just told you. In Mad Scientist University, everyone gets an insane assignment. Then everyone uses an unstable element to describe a mad plan for making it happen. And then the TA picks a winner. And when you buy it right now, you get the Spring Break expansion for free. Do you think they sell giant robots at Sandals Resorts? If you're playing Mad Scientist University, you get to decide that for yourself. To learn more, visit atlas-games.com slash Robin dash msu. That's atlas-games.com slash Robin dash m like Mike, s like sugar, u like union. Or follow the link in the show notes. Yeah, that's the way to do it. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Jonas Beardsley asks Ken and Robin, by way of pointing us to a Wired article about the way interstellar CGI effects changed physicists' understanding of black holes. And then he asks, can you think of a way that putting an effect in a movie which is accurate, perhaps too accurate, could go horribly wrong in a way that makes for interesting gaming? I like that that last bit, because you'd hate for us to spend 15 minutes answering a question in a way that makes for lackluster, sly-on-the-floor gaming. So well, let's see what I we can do. The about Jonas's question is, it's a nice softball, yes. which I appreciate. Um, <laughs> to, to let the listeners in a little secret, we're recording a double episode today, two episodes in one recording session to accommodate Ken's travel plans, and so I picked some easy ones. <laughs> so can we think of something going horribly wrong? Why, yes, we can, Jonas. Yes, yes, um, we can. We may think of several horrible somethings, but let's uh, start out by uh, chatting about that uh, interesting article on Interstellar. So basically, the idea is that Christopher Nolan, in making Interstellar, wanted the black hole that appears in the film to be realistically portrayed because he was going for more of the Arthur C. Clarke thing than the George Lucas thing. Yes. And so he put the vast rendering and computing resources available to a modern, well-funded movie special effects unit into the task of making an accurate representation of a black hole that he could show on scene. And as a result of that, he had more computing money to throw at the problem than astrophysicists (laughs) typically do. And so uh, the astrophysicists who supplied all of the math to create these simulations then got to discover cool things about uh, black holes that they had not suspected, but as soon as they saw them went, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And specifically, it was about the way the accretion disk, which is, I gather, the uh, the big sort of flowy nimbus thing around the black hole, that it was warped as well in a way that they had not anticipated but made sense when they saw it. Do I encapsulate correctly? I think so. Um, the astrophysicist in question is Kip Thorne, who you may have heard of. 
Uh, he's sort of been bouncing around the, the, the edges of Hollywood as sort of one of the Hollywood astrophysicists. So this, this is not his first radio. But I do like the notion that if you really want to get a budget for pure science, make, uh, have someone make a blockbuster about the topic. So get ready, sociologists. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, he, uh, I, I think that what he did was, is he gave them these giant sets of crazy equations that would describe a black hole the way, as he, as he theorizes that it would be described. Obviously, it's not a real black hole. It is real insofar as his astrophysics are correct. And then they plug it into the computer and they have to rewrite the rendering software to make sure that it could do the math, which I think is delightful because rendering software normally moves light in a straight line for obvious reasons. And with a black hole, you can't do that. And then they look at it and he, and they're like, oh, no, the software screwed up because look, it's it's sort of duplicating. And then they, they it's duplicating the image. And then they showed it to Kip Thorne. He's like, Oh, hold on. That, that could be what it actually does. And he says there's going to be two whole papers that he can get. Because this is nothing different than, you know, testing out a, a plane in a wind tunnel, right? I mean, it's the same basic thing. You've got your, your theoretical con- construct, in this case, a, an astrophysical mathematical construct, and you put it in the cloud chamber, you, um, uh, run some spectrometry through it, and you see what happens. And in this case, you're, you're taking your math and you're exposing it to, fundamentally, to geometry. And seeing what comes out, and that's that's the way that physics has worked since you know Euclid, much less since Newton. So I think it's just kind of a a lovely continuity with uh, with with the way that things uh, happened back in the old days. And it it'd be nice to see, you know, once because com- computing power is only going to get super super cheap, they'll be able to do this, you know, on your desktop in uh, probably five years, right? Right. And so let's start with the low hanging fruit. Then one of the things that computing scans are starting to uh, revealed to us as satellite imagery is beginning to show us all of the ancient ruins uh, buried beneath things that we did not think there were ancient ruins buried beneath, i.e. most of South America. And so the obvious first choice is there could be a site of ancient horror and destruction in a modern supernatural game that movie producers then want to do, you know, an exciting new costume epic set in this uh, ancient city of which very little is known, so you can make all sorts of stuff up and not have to worry about historical accuracy and make it a big to-do in the marketing campaign that this is a... the sets are an accurate map, uh, both digitally and physically, of what they've discovered through satellite imagery. And, of course, this is an inhuman city that was never meant to rise again. And then once you raise this city uh, virtually you then cause the supernatural beings who are resident in that city to then uh, manifest. And you could do it one of two ways. They could be manifesting physically on the sets that you design based on these absolutely accurate computer renditions of what the original city looked like. Or for an uh, extra modern twist, they could be the ghosts in the machine. They could start manifesting inside your computer simulations and then start trying to get out. I think that that is, as you say, sort of the the, the low-hanging fruit of, of this. I think it might be fun to try and think a little bit harder about SF or colorably hard SF versions of this, since it, we start with our, our awesome black hole. And another of the effects in the, in the movie, in Interstellar, is a wormhole that Kip Thorne also designed. And given that a wormhole is basically a mathematical expression... Uh, if you present a two-dimensional image of a mathematical expression, does that create some sort of quantum effect, right? And the question is, since we don't know uh, necessarily, I mean, we're just now discovering all the weird stuff that the quantum effects can can uh, influence on the macro level, and then conversely, that in theory, macro events could have influence on the quantum level. So if you're presenting a two-dimensional version of a three-dimensional or, or multi-dimensional effect, you could create a quantum black hole and maybe, or a quantum tunnel, and maybe there's uh, some sort of thread of information that gets uh, that gets sent. Again, inter- Interstellar is, is about moving the information through this wormhole. Maybe you're able to move information through the wormhole because it's mapping onto the lower dimensionality of the macro level in our world from the, you know expressible dimension of the film. So you watch the movie and suddenly you hear from yourself 20 years in the future. You watch the movie and everyone hears from NASA 20 years in the future saying, turn back, turn back now, or something like that. And, and you have sort of a, a social effect of a scientific rupture that's created. Does that make any sense? 
as much sense as we would need to for a game session. I think that's so. For sure. Yeah. Um, another sort of related idea is what if you've got a sort of a, a Kubrickian figure who wants to make a, a movie, a cosmic film that begins with the Big Bang. And so you start doing all the calculations in order to do a computer simulation of the Big Bang. And it becomes apparent to uh, some of the people working on the project that creating a sufficiently detailed simulation of the Big Bang on a significantly powerful computer is indistinguishable from hitting the reset button in the universe and starting another Big Bang. And so that, uh, first of all, raises the question of, did this has this happened again and again throughout on a cosmic scale, where uh, somewhere uh, the universe expands and planets develop, and one of the planets has a life form that becomes sophisticated enough to figure out the equation and hit the button and destroy themselves and start all over again. And then once you discover that, you've got your basic sort of chase uh, formula uh, where you're trying to get to the guy who's, who's, you know, run off with the uh, code and is trying to assemble the big enough computer to knowingly reset the universe because uh, uh, he's mad at his girlfriend or he's dying of cancer or uh, he wants to uh, go back and prevent the night when he uh, accidentally caused his uh, parents to die in a plane crash and thinks he can just, it's just Groundhog Day mm -hmm. where the rest of you know no, no, this is just going to completely restart the universe. And, you know, maybe there'll be jellyfish man the next time around, but there's not going to be us. So you've got this sort of conventional chase structure on this uh, cosmic slash CGI plot premise. And then what you can do with that is that perhaps, you know, there are start to be effects moving back in time of all the quantum possibilities of, you know, because if all the realities are true, he, he both has already and hasn't already pushed the button. And so as you get closer to him, there are more reality distortions and you have to overcome those reality distortions to make sure that at least in your version of reality is the one where you stop him from pushing the button. Maybe we can talk about, uh, since we talked about perception last time or whichever time it was, we can talk about the notion that since we only process what we see after it happens, and we decide what to do after we've already done it. I mean, if you look at when your nerves twitch versus when your brain lights up, right? Your nerves twitch and then your brain lights up. So we are actually experiencing life a little in a little bit of a time delay. So let's say that you've got uh, something like the the Peter Jackson blipverts, where they've got the, the 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 events on the screen are happening to sync up with that time delay. So that as you are watching something in the movie, you suddenly believe that it is happening to you because it's sort of exactly resonating with the time delay that your brain works into things that are real versus things that are not real. And in, in the same sort of way that uh, people were scared of that train going out of the screen in the first uh, silent Western, maybe people begin by having sort of weird religious effects and everyone's like oh that's hilarious they're they're worshiping ben affleck that's that's darling but eventually you know our ability to even determine what's on a screen and what's not on a screen gets more and more messed up as more and more people use this technique and then filmmakers who are trying to make you know philip k dick type movies start making movies that are about the mind fuck caused by watching a movie like this and now no one knows what what's going on at all and no one in society can communicate unless they're sitting in the same theater watching the same movie at the same time and then they can only communicate with gross motor action they can't communicate with with words or by you know having to watch your face and see it light up right right there's a thing called entoptic phenomenon which are these uh, geometric uh, patterns that appear to people who are entering uh, trance states to bring in yet another recent segment and so you could have a sufficiently realistic or accurate CGI representation of entoptic states where just by sitting in the movie theater that could send you uh, on a trip and alter your psychology and then there are all sorts of different ways you could go from that and it could uh, in a supernatural world it could actually bring you into the spirit realm or in a more realistic world it can just start causing uh, psychological destabilization because people are entering trance state without the proper ritual context and understanding and then it causes all anything from PTSD to uh, other literal forms of neurological damage and so you uh, are trying to track down all of the prints of this uh, film and this file and destroy them but meanwhile the file has gone you know viral on uh, torrenting sites and more and more people are watching it and changing it and so it becomes the basic basis for a new uh, religion or social movement that is uh, disruptive and uh, 
either the world has to find an accommodation with this uh, new cyber shamanism or uh, somehow bring an end to it. Maybe, and we we all know that uh, there are there are certain commonalities to what happens to your your vision when you start to die, right? The rods and the cones start to give out, and so your your vision sort of focuses in, into a bright light, and you get a tunnel. And these effects seem to have a physiological basis to them. And let's say that there is also an auditory effect and a number of other effects that are caused by these micro flashes of your brain. And as we get better and better and better able to read MRIs of people, at some point they start figuring out exactly the sensory input that happens when someone dies. And then someone puts it into a film for whatever reason. And so now as you're watching it, and you're, you're, you're processing this, some number of people, maybe not even everyone who sees it, but some number of people who are at, at some end of the neurological bell curve, they process the information of seeing the sight and hearing the sound that happens when you die, and it's like your, your Big Bang reset. It resets them, right? They're sort of wiped clean like the Tibetan Chod ritual. Their individuality is gone. Back to the factory settings. They're back to factory settings, and then... Maybe they come back out as themselves when they were a baby, or maybe they come back out as this sort of weird walk-in tulku that's sent from the Tibetan bardo, the land of the, the world of the dead. Or maybe they come back as demons, or maybe they come back as zombies, and you can just sort of mind-control people who are walking around after they've seen this dead moment. And that's the sort of thing that you're going to have happen to you by knowing way too much about the neurological effects of, of crucial moments like death. And then, of course, with birth, that would be the other way. Maybe you, you have a, a, the thing that happens in a baby's brain when it's born, and you have to um, uh, use that to sort of rejigger people and then pour a whole lifetime into them at uh, super fast speed. They, they have to watch <laughs> Richard Linklater's over it to get back up to grown-ups. Of... <laughs> right. And uh, I guess we're, just before we uh, depart from this segment, we are leaving a major bit of low-hanging fruit uh, on the tree if we don't mention uh, creatures. So yeah. that you could have a an animated monster that is sufficiently based in the kinetics of real-life animals all combined together that you just happen to uh, put together something that is a, a banished monster from the long-dead Lovecraftian eons long past and then can start to realize it and that as more and more people uh, start to relate to this creature and they buy the merchandise and they uh, play with the action figures and they play the video game that it enters into the uh, cosmic uh, or, or interpersonal unconscious enough that then it one of these uh, the spirits of one of these beings is able to realize and then they uh, uh, begin to manifest in real life and that may be the you know the beginning of your uh, post-apocalyptic uh, monsters for your versus uh, people setting. Yeah, it sort of um, uh, tulpas out, and then the question is, can you combat it with the monsters that we all know but haven't mapped, like unicorns and dragons and griffins? Can they actually stop this thing? I mean, they're all individually weaker because they weren't, you know, powerful Lovecraftian creations. But more people know about them, so maybe that's the sort of gaming possibility and that you're going around trying to strengthen these uh, desperate antibody tulpas while you try and figure out a way to put the genie back into its bottle. You're right. And you're sequencing people together in dream tanks. You're mm -hmm. creating it protected installations where uh, people like the precogs and minority report are lying there in pools, but they're not predicting the future. They're all working together to manifest uh, uh, creatures that will work for them. And I suppose the craziest version of that, of course, is their kaiju, right? Yeah, right. That they, well, they're, they're, they're all kinds of things, right? It's, you know, the whole island of Japan turns out that their whole culture has been built up to this, uh, this, this moment when they all get to imagine Pokemons together and send them out to, to fight uh, Cthulhu. Yeah, well, as soon as we have Pokemon fighting Cthulhu, it's time to uh, run at top speed to the nearest hut. With the speed lines behind us. Hey, map lovers. Scale Realms RPG Maps and Plans has a brand new Kickstarter running from March 2nd to April 2nd. 
The campaign features full-color, high-quality maps with 3D structures and landscaping, with a hex or square option. The name behind Scale Realms is Jeff James, a professional CAD draftsman and DC supervillain. Jeff hopes that fellow gamers, uh, mini-makers, and RPG fans will help him raise $2,000 to purchase the necessary computer to complete these maps and more. To pledge a donation and to learn more about Jeff James and his plans to rob every jewelry store in Central City in an hour, oh, and his Kickstarter campaign, go to ScaleRealms.com and click on the link. The cobwebs on the wall, the mysterious claw marks, and the distant rattling of chains inform us that we've entered the unnerving precincts of the Horror Hut. And this week I thought we would talk a little bit about fear and childhood fear, and specifically the earliest times we can remember being scared. I was thinking particularly of horror media, but uh, maybe we'll mention uh, real-life fears or not, uh, what we'll get to. But uh, Ken, can you recall the earliest memories of being scared by horror as a kid? Let's see, the earliest memories, I'm not necessarily sure what those might be. They almost have to have been a universal horror classic it has to I, and i'm willing to bet it was probably frankenstein of the mummy because uh bella lugosi has never scared me and it's hardly bella lugosi's fault it's the script's fault he's he's you know compelled me and interested me a lot but he's he's not a scary vampire certainly not to a little kid who doesn't even know what's going on necessarily uh, but frankenstein was scary yes yeah, so you don't have to worry about uh being sexually preyed upon in the same way that uh someone who's aware of the danger of that is right so that the, the fear of dracula is not too intense for kids, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of a there's sort of an on, there's there's sort of a curiosity about Dracula, but I was curious about everything, obviously. Um, but Frankenstein was was really sort of arresting and horrible with his with his big weird head, and I suspect that uh, Boris Karloff's big weird head in the mummy uh, makeup in the early bits of the mummy probably also had an effect on me. I I don't know that I remember being scared by them though. I mean, my first memory of really just being terrified by any kind of of media event would you know it, it's very late it it's it's probably you know reading lovecraft when i was a little bit too young to read lovecraft or something i don't really remember as a child having any of that sort of stephen king it type uh terror either from uh tv or from the movies or or obviously from living in a in a perfectly delightful nigh nigh utopian oklahoma city in the 60s and 70s when i was 5 uh, and I do recall this uh, quite distinctly. Uh, my dad uh, made a decision that my uh, mom wished she had countermanded, and we stayed up late to watch on TV the Creature from the Black Lagoon together. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, being entranced by it, uh, not necessarily being frightened while I was watching it, but I think it was very cool. And I still have the image of the swimming sequence on a little black-and-white TV in, in my memory, uh, but then that night, or maybe the night thereafter, or maybe even a couple nights thereafter, I don't know, I made the mistake of having a bad dream that became apparent to my mom. Mm. And so uh, uh, Dad and I were busted on uh, watching horror movies together late at night, and it was a long time before uh, I dove back into the horror genre, and that was by the, at the time that I was old enough to choose things for myself and even had, you know, TV in my room and stuff. And I remember when I was like uh, much older, like maybe nine, 10, 11, even older than that, uh, some crazy, uh, I think it was like, even it was King Kong or something. Mm -hmm. that's not uh, frightening in that way. It's thrilling. It's not frightening. Yeah. And I was watching it in my room and my mom came, are you sure it's okay if you're going to, mm. so that, that would be my very earliest uh, uh, memory of that. Uh, other things that really scared me as a kid were things that were conventionally safer kids entertainment, but then had more of a sense of uh, eeriness or uh, danger to them. The uh, two-part episode of the Black and White Superman show with George Reeve, where the uh, Mole Men episode, do you remember that one? Mm-hmm, yeah. And so anyway, there's this episode where there's aliens in it, and, and that's the only time in the whole run of the show where there's anything unnatural or strange other than Superman in the show, right? It doesn't even have supervillains in it. Um, Superman is typically 
fighting mismatched battles against bank uh, robbers, bad guys, and he's investigating cases and figuring out and apprehending them. But in this case, there's these weird mole man figures, and just their existence, even though they turn out to be kind of sympathetic figures, they really creeped me out bad. And even on multiple reruns, uh, I would still watch, but I, that those guys uh, alarmed me. Um, so when you're getting a little older and starting to get into horror, what are the, the Lovecraft things that start to scare you? Well, I want to go back because you mentioned things that were not supposed to be scary, but turned out to be scary. And I, I, I remembered when you mentioned your bad dream, I remember my bad dream when I was a kid that I used to have a lot which was a thing with a glowing head chasing me. And that was and and so I suspect that I probably saw some sort of, you know, ghost show or something that had a ghost with a glowing face. And I remember when I was a kid actually really being scared by a book version of the old sort of Irish folktale uh The King of the Cats, which I don't know if you know how it goes. But it's the one where the guy is walking home and he sees the, the cats holding the little coffin with the crown on it. And uh, they, you know, and, and uh, they, they say, go and, uh, and tell Tim Tom that Tom Tim is dead. And he goes to his house and he tells his wife all about what he just saw. And as he's doing it, his cat is paying more and more attention. And then he says, go and tell Tim Tom that uh, Tom Tim that Tim Tom is dead. And the cat says... Tim Tom is dead, then I, Tom Tim, am king of the cats, and jumps up the chimney is never seen again. And even the terrible way that I just told that, the crummy, crummy delivery <laughs> that I just used, I've, I've got, I've literally got goosebumps standing up on my, on my arms right now, just from remembering reading that. So I think that must have just terrified the life out of me, but I, I sort of have distanced myself from remembering the terror, except that every time I read that story or think about it or say it on a podcast, I, I sort of scare myself all over again. So I, I think that maybe I, I, I mortgaged, I got a 30-year a mortgage on that uh, moment of, of uh, <laughs> sheer um, uh, fright. But I, 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 that, that one has stayed with me, and I think that there was probably, I read a lot of ghost books and, and folktale books and things when I was a kid, and I'll bet a lot of them were illustrated by really good illustrators in a way that I probably shouldn't have been allowed to look at. Um, another example of something that as uh, you wouldn't think of as scary that uh, upset me as a, a kid, uh, there's a there's a Flintstones feature film. I'm not sure offhand whether it was uh, done in the 60s and I saw it in a re-release or whether it was done in the 70s. But at any rate, it's, I suspect it was done in the 60s because it's a spy spoof. And so Fred Flintstone is suddenly a spy. And because Fred is in jeopardy in this, because he's a spy, other spies are trying to kill him. And that breaks the rules of Fred Flintstone in so many ways that this figure who was, uh, you know, comfortingly safe and uh, comedic and unknown to me, a barely uh, altered rehash of the Honeymooners, it's suddenly in mortal danger. Um, and that uh, really, really bothered me a lot because I, I think that, although, of course, I wouldn't have articulated it in that way, the fact that the safety of the genre rules uh, had been pulled out from under me uh, was uh, jarring in a way that, I, you know, if I'd gone to a Superman movie and Superman is in jeopardy or Lone Ranger or whatever, that's part of the deal. But somehow the fact that Fred Flintstone might be killed was uh, quite upsetting. I remember seeing... I, I watched a ton of UFO shows when I was a kid, and I remember seeing a reenactment of I think it was the Barney and Betty Hill abduction with the with the light in the in the car, and of course it's the scene that has been used eight million times since then. But everyone sees it the first time, and again I don't remember being scared by it, but I remember exactly what it looked like and everything about that scene, the visuals of it, in a way that make me suspect that I was probably pretty scared then. But all I remember now is the is the sort of the wonder as opposed to the terror half of that equation, because obviously that wonder is has you know sort of tainted my my uh, game design career ever since. Um, I also uh, remember when I was reading, I'd read all the Narnia books, and my and my dad said, "Well, now that you've read Narnia, you can read the Space Trilogy, which is the next you know big." sort of uh, genre thing that C.S. Lewis does. And I read Out of the Silent, Silent Planet, and I thought that was pretty great. And I read Paralandra, and I remember that terrified me, just the way that uh, the devil was there tempting and torturing Ransom on that big raft in the middle of the seaweed ocean with nothing else to do except listen to the devil say your name over and over and over again. And I remember thinking, man, that's that's really horrible. And that's sort of maybe my first moment of psychological terror as opposed to you know, floaty ghosts or creepy, spooky cat prophecies, right? Right. 
the thing that, that terrified me uh, most of all in terms of written material when I was a, a teenager was the book of lists. <laughs> if you remember from the 70s, this is just... Oh, a, yeah. I owned uh, all so of it's them. list after list after list. And the thing that absolutely most terrified me was there was a list of uh, the 10 most spectacular human deformities. Mm. And uh, the one that it mentions is Edward Mordrake. And uh, I don't know if that name rings a bell with you, but that's the English peer who supposedly had an extra face on the back of his head <laughs> and that the uh, extra face on the back of his head could even have different expressions that even though it was a, a, a primitive vestigial face, it could weep and, and grimace and so forth. And not only did I read that and found, find that chilling to the bone because uh, I think I immediately inferred that there was a second consciousness to this mm -hmm. head. Uh, and the fact that it was supposedly real, of course, was quite uh, terrifying. It was even better. Uh, not only that, but I was actually not in my own home when I read this. We were staying with relatives in another city. And so I was uh, sleeping on a cot in the middle of this big open basement rec room. <laughs> so I was in an unfamiliar environment uh, with the pitch blackness uh, just unable to dismiss from my mind the uh, my mental image of uh, Edward Mordrake. And so that was uh, uh, extremely uh, frightening. And also on uh, the grounds of things that are supposed to be real, um, my uh, dad also, uh, when I was uh, a young teenager, uh, introduced me to the world of uh, Eric Von Daniken and UFOs and so forth. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's one description in there of a uh, cave in China, uh, conveniently located in then inaccessible China, in which uh, alien mummies were found. And there was something about just the description of the alien mummies, plus my then credulity, I was able to conjure up a vivid enough mental image that uh, that, that uh, sense of alienness and aliens being real also really, really got to me. Yeah, the Lovecraft story that... Uh, I was 11 when I read The Color Out of Space, which if you're listening and you uh, have an 11-year-old or are an 11-year-old, that's too young. Um <laughs> Uh, and I was, and I read it in an anthology of um, other sort of golden age science fiction stuff. So it's all about Earthmen going out and conquering the galaxy and slapping aliens around and making everything work for us. And you know, the scariest thing imaginable in those is, oh no, we may not have enough fuel to make an orbit around Jupiter or whatever. Yeah, let me get my slide rule. Yeah, get my this. slide. Get my slide rule out. I'll fix it. Winnie, you make sandwiches. And that's, you know, that was what all of the other stories in that anthology were, except The Color Out of Space, which is, you know, existential bleakness and nightmarish doom, uh, inevitable nightmarish doom. And that, and again, you talk about the verisimilitude, of course, because Lovecraft, uh, at that point is writing a very, very realistic, uh, story, very realistic prose style. And yeah, that just, that just turned my life over. And I, I it took me, I think, two years and then I found the big paperback of Lovecraft in the garage that my dad had owned. And it, that I had to, I had to ration out for the next year and a half to make sure that I didn't, you know, overdose on the stuff. Well, at least you got a handy career out of it. I did. The Lovecraft story that stared me when I was first exposed to it, uh, I think again, relates to this idea of, of relating to things that are grounded in your real experience uh, was uh, a whisper in the darkness because, and it was the, just the description of the trip, up to the cabin to see the guy who turns out to have his head in a jar that I found frightening uh, because I uh, visualized this in my mind as relating to a uh, drive I took in Northern Ontario as a kid in the back. I mean, I wasn't driving, I was in the back seat. Right. And I was sort of, I guess, kind of in a half awake hypnagogic state as seeing all of these kind of bare gray trees go by. And that struck me as kind of uh, eerie at the time, eerie in retrospect, and then eerie when I connected it to this story. So uh, that seemed to, again, uh, was something that had an extra dimension of uh, reality to it or seemed to intrude into our reality and therefore seemed, you know, much more frightening than something like uh, a, a gothic uh, Poe thing or uh, universal monsters. As much as I loved those things, I just loved them. I wasn't uh, particularly... Yeah frightened by that. Poe kind of messed me up. Um, uh, the, all the rats in Pit and the Pendulum, because I hate rats. I hate them then, I hate them now. And uh, the black cat actually managed to scare me because of the fact that the cat was basically just going to kill that guy, and there was nothing you could do about it. You can't talk to a cat 
and say, no, cat, it was a misunderstanding, don't kill me, you're just screwed once a devil cat takes it into its head to go after you. So I think Poe actually, I don't know if I read Poe before Lovecraft or after Lovecraft, or maybe right around the same time as I was getting into Lovecraft, but I remember Poe having some real moments for me. I'm, I'm just glad that you hadn't read Algernon Blackwood before you drove up into Ontario, or you'd never come back. <laughs> um the uh, the post story that really gets uh, that got me was the cask of Amontillado, and it's not supernatural at all. It's just the slow predation of one person upon another, and it's the methodical quality with which that wall is bricked in that really uh, again underlines the fact that the the really terrifying monsters are people. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, I guess that's kind of a, our uh, tour of childhood dread, and I think we've already picked out the kind of unifying principles of that. So I think we can now creepily creep to the next half. is also brought to you by OdysseyCon 15. Madison, Wisconsin's very own OdysseyCon 15 takes place from April 10th to the 12th, 2015. At the Crown Plaza Hotel. Featuring literary guest of honor, Jonathan Mabry. Literary guest of honor, Heather Brewer. Literary and game design guest of honor, Matt Forbeck. That's twice as good a guest of honor. Four full tracks of panels, writing craft, literature, gaming, and media. Or check out the art show. Benefit auction. The Bluebeard Comedy Show. Cosmo Joe spray paint art demos. Weather permitting. D&D Adventurers League games. Pathfinder Society events. Open tabletop gaming. Zombie prom. Full service con suite. And miniatures paint and take. Robin, both you and I have done the guest thing at OdysseyCon. Uh, yeah, I'd really recommend, uh, as I depart from the script, that anyone who wants to go should go, because it's a well-run, relaxed show with a lot of great programming. And also, the con works really hard, I think, to make the guests available to the fans, but also you can sort of just chill out and kind of move at your own speed. It kind of combines that good relaxicon quality of a good science fiction con with the full plate of possibility that a good gaming or, or multimedia con does. They've sort of managed to thread that needle, I think. So if you're within driving distance of Madison and wondering whether you should head on out... You definitely should. Find out more at odysseycon.org. The soft pad of the alien big cat, the whir of the saucerian theremin, and the smell of maple syrup tell us we've entered a can content segment of the elliptony hut. And Robin, you have... Uh, you, you try very hard there in Toronto to, to stay relevant after you've, you've packed your mayor off to, um, uh, rehab and, uh, and chemo. Uh, and you have found for us a mystery tunnel, but sadly, it's not a mystery anymore. So, can we make it a mystery? Um, right. Of course we'll make it a mystery. Thank so, God. Um, this, this is not officially an Ask Ken and, and Robin thing, but, uh, I, uh, saw this story and, and posted it on social media and also, got a lot of requests for the podcast to deal with it. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, Toronto police discovered in a wooded area not far from a tennis arena, I guess it is, uh, called the Rexall Center, uh, where the upcoming uh, Pan Am Games tennis matches will be held. Anyway, in this wooded area, they found this tunnel or this excavated series of kind of uh, rooms that initially had a sense of cool mystery surrounding it uh, because who built this tunnel? Someone who knew about building tunnels, apparently. It was all uh, well done and properly reinforced. And uh, there was a, a rosary and a Remembrance Day poppy uh, pinned to the wall, which seemed to suggest uh, some uh, odd seriousness of, of purpose. But uh, police finally found out that the uh, makers uh, were not older weird cranks as suspected, but were a, a couple of fun-loving guys who just always had a dream to have a tunnel. Yeah. They were cool kids is what they were. Yep. The main guy was named uh, Elton McDonald, and he and his friend Jamal decided it would just be, you know, it's the fort building impulse, but they decided to build a really elaborate uh, fort system 
uh, and hang out and uh, watch a portable TV and uh, eat snacks uh, in this giant well-made hole in the ground. Because that's, that's the real problem, right, is the fort-building impulse uh, sort of it diminuendos by the time you actually have the skills needed to make a proper fort, I think, in a lot of cases. And and what I, what I guess uh, Elton has shown us is that that doesn't have to happen. Yeah, if, if you still have a dream, if you haven't let go your, of your fort dream, mm-hmm. uh, you can have, a, have an underground subterranean fort. Um, and if you read the interview with him, it really sounds like an episode, uh, the B story in a community episode from like season two or three, where Troy and Abed decide mm-hmm. to build a tunnel. Um, but we know differently here on Ken and Robin talk about stuff because we know that that has to be the veil out, uh, that would have been put in place by, uh, hardworking agents of the Ordo Veritatis who are dedicated to uh, preventing the supernatural truth from, uh, leaking into the world. So now we've got this convenient cover story to save our sanity. Uh, what do you think uh, other uh, more gameable explanations for a mystery tunnel might be? Well, I mean, we talked about the mole people earlier in the show, and obviously when you have tunnels under a major North American city, you're talking about mole people. So I suspect that that would be like your first thing, is that the the, the tunnel is to talk to the mole people or to summon the mole people or to create the mole people to bring them into in, into existence, depending on if it's Esoterrorists or another more conventionally supernatural game. Um, another possibility is that uh, the tunnel is a Mithraeum, right? You go down in there because you have to worship Mithras in a in a little underground, uh, tiny, cramped, dark space. Um, also, it's a place to store vampires. Um, and I think that if uh, Elton is has killed a vampire and he's got it buried down there, the way to keep people from messing with it is to say, "Oh, it's just my tunnel for barbecuing." And, you know, the, what he's barbecuing down there, of course, is um, uh, Ashwood uh, so that he can nail some more stakes down when people aren't uh, paying attention. Right. And police have uh, informed everybody that they don't have to worry. The tunnel has been safely filled in again, which tells us that the tunnel remains remains intact, in, intact, but possibly with a different entrance so that if you're looky loo, you're not going to go in and find it. So it's a portal that's now there in order for the uh, Ordo Veritatis and the Toronto police uh auxiliary members who are also part of the Ordo Veritatis to sort of control, and they know that there's this opening in the earth. Uh, Another uh, sort of creature that I uh, described on the blog, uh, the Pelgrim blog recently, is the workmen, and these are uh, creatures of the outer dark who, you know, if you see an unexplained hole in your pavement of your street that never seems to close up and just always has a barrier around it. And, you know, there's road work that seems to be going on forever and the hole gets closed up and then it opens again and then it gets closed up and then there's holes down the road. Well, those may be the workmen because they, uh, these holes just sort of manifest spontaneously in a way that people's collective understanding, uh, accepts as, as real and true and as, as logical as any other bit of construction work in a city. But then, in the night, the workmen come and they then creep uh, into your uh, into your home and then they start to psychically uh, prey on you and they draw the energy from you that that they can then uh, generate in order to take back to the uh, to the outer uh, dark or to manifest to create more holes elsewhere. And their plan is to slowly increase people's acceptance of nonstop ongoing road work until there's a a hole on every street, and then once that happens, they will all surge out on mass and uh, start attacking, and that will rip apart the veil that will separate us from uh, reality. So it's uh, not, or, or sorry, from the outer dark. So uh, it's not too big a step from there to think that this is a, a workman spawning ground where they uh, all sort of manifest together, and then they move through the city at night and then start to uh, find places where they can uh, psychically manifest these uh, s- construction holes in the night. I think that the uh, the possibility that the tunnel is not a pla- it, it, that it's its own creature, right? It's it's its own thing. It's not a a, a conduit for monsters to come up through, or a or a way for the uh, you to get down to 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 a land of, of phosphorescent fungi and dinosaurs. But the tunnel is itself an entity, and by existing it amps up the ley lines or it creates a new reality above the spot where it is. If you uh, think of our psychogeography segment, that the existence of a, of a secret tunnel or an elliptonic tunnel underneath a spot 
has a influence on the on the street above it or on the on the buildings above it, even if no one in those buildings knows it it does, especially if they don't know that it does. And the revelation of this part of the tunnel, of the true tunnel, the the sort of tunnel worm, tunnel serpent, sort of the negative space serpent that is the tunnel, the revel the revelation of it is the making manifest that which should be hidden, the the act of peeking behind the the the, the, the veil that allows the outer dark to, 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 to take a reality that allows the conspiracy or the Masons or whoever it is to influence our minds with this psychogeographical psychogeometric uh, working literally. And the tunnel, if you, if you go back to the, um, to the sort of the mid 19th century, the myth, the urban legend of tunnels underneath the city where, uh, conspirators met and where bad things happened and where the devil lived and, and the sort of image of um uh you know uh, uh of crime rings and white slavers and all kinds of other stuff going on in tunnels under our very city it was a whole genre it was like a major trope in in 19th uh, century gothic and and sort of adventure fiction and so the instantiation of these tunnels creates a a gothicized quality to the city above it or to or it creates a gothic geometry that there's there's not monsters in it but the existence of the tunnel is itself a, a spider if it's got you know the the if it's got a crossroads in it or, or it's a serpent if it just winds around and the idea of tunnels uh, being themselves entities and having a uh, purpose and an agenda brings to mind a particular fact about toronto which is that we have the largest, I think, contiguous underground network that you can go from point A to B in, uh, in the sort of southern business district of the city called the PATH system. Mm -hmm. And so there's all of, there's an underground layer of um, malls and food courts and offices and so forth, all connected up for a big distance because we're a wintry city. (laughs) Yeah. And and so uh, during the cold months, which we're thankfully just escaping from, uh, people don't want to go outside, and so there's all these businesses downside. Well, uh, it has that obvious utilitarian purpose, but what if the you know the, the tunnels themselves, the hallways, the corridors themselves have a purpose, and that they uh, you know their desire is to replicate the entire city underground, and then once they've done that and expanded the path far enough, then they're preparing. Uh, they may be preparing humanity for its uh, future subterranean life in which we will revert to being mole men, uh, or it will just start devouring people. And so perhaps... We the, have always uh, lived in the tunnel. Right. And so uh, perhaps this uh, this bit of the uh, tunnel up way up near the Rexall Center uh, in the uh, heart of concrete suburbia was just a, a stray larva from the path system that uh, uh, got separated and got dropped and began to uh, slowly form its own system. And if it had been uh, uh, left alone, uh, it would uh, have begun to replicate the path system and would have started uh, spawning Starbucks's and uh, Toll House cookie places and uh, could have then put into whole question, you know, what is, wait a minute, I thought these were all built by developers and we had permits for all this stuff and what's going on. And that could lead to, you know, the uh, war between the tunnel people and the above ground people. Or retroactively, creates its own history it shows that you know the starbucks pop into existence with their permits in place and the tunnel comes into existence with a plaque on the wall saying that it was built uh during world war ii as a civil defense measure um and even though it only actually spawned uh in 2015 uh, but it spawns with its historical tunnel self its historical uh, uh tail extending backward behind it so uh we've got all sorts of different options from the uh, tunnels being spawning grounds for creatures to the tunnels being creatures themselves. I suppose if the tunnel is a creature, uh, one thing, it, instead of replicating the path system, just to stick within Canadiana, it could be replicating the Oak Island money pit. Right. Uh, maybe we talked about that in a uh, previous segment. So perhaps uh, the money pit is itself a devouring creature that is uh, trying to eat people, uh, if not physically eat them, to eat their time and attention and, and uh, uh, mythic perspective. And so the uh, tunnel, if left on its own, might have generated a legend of treasure surrounding it. Or maybe in a couple of years, we'll hear that, oh, well, you know, Elton and Jamal were really looking for the uh, secret treasure that was buried there. And then other people will come and start to excavate it. And the next time they excavate it, it will have all of these elements that were never described before. And there'll be another Oak Island uh, uh, money pit. And maybe those will, again, start to 
sprout up across Canada or even uh, North America in general. Um, so I think uh, we've well tunneled into that and can uh, now uh, move through this uh, lovely underground escalator system to our final hut of the episode. The clacking of time gears and the whirring of chronotons tell us that we've once more entered proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to shoot Ken back into the timeline in order to bend, fold, spindle, and yes, sometimes even mutilate it. And this time around, Time Incorporated has uh, asked him to go uh, back into the uh, Dark Ages to protect Irmansul from Charlemagne. Uh, before you start messing with the timeline, uh, which one of those things do you want to 101 first, Irmansul or Charlemagne? Well, I certainly hope that everyone understands that Charlemagne was the uh, great uh, king of the Franks, who then became emperor of the Romans by dint of uh, <laughs> being the only game in town for the Catholic Church. So they made him an emperor against his will. Uh, but the sort of tipping point moment that made him from just King of the Fran Franks to sort of the, uh, the, 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 the right arm of, uh, of Christ in Europe was his destruction of the pagan Saxons, who at that point were uh, a fairly feisty batch of Germans on the uh, eastern border of Frankland and showed no in inclination to turn Catholic because they had a magical pillar called the Irmansul. Um, which probably began as a tree trunk and then became a big fancy tree trunk and then eventually became a big, uh, maybe a wooden pillar or, a, or even a, a stone pillar or brick pillar. And inside the Ermansul, they would put all the offerings that would go to their god, probably Odin, but possibly, um, uh, the, the Zeus parallel to you, which was the German version of Zeus. And once you get to the Ermansul, you chop it down because, first of all, that breaks the back of paganism on the uh, on the east uh, flank of Charlemagne's expanding kingdom, and B, all the money falls out and you get to keep it, which is a great reason to chop something down, whether you're Charlemagne or or a, or a simple Canadian uh, digging through Oak Island. So they rolled for treasure, and it was inside Irmansul. They, they rolled for treasure. It was inside the Irmansul. They did dig up a stone column uh, about fifty or sixty years after. Charlemagne knocked it down, and the maybe it may have been a little longer than that. But whether it was that stone column or just a Roman stone column that was lying around because a lot of the Roman stuff got knocked over by Charlemagne's, you know, great grandparents when they came and invaded the place in the first place, um, hard to say. But they but they put that column back up and and had proper Christian mass at it for you know the next thousand years or so just to make sure that the the Tiu and or Odin would go away and leave you alone. So, you uh, arrive in your time machine, and where do you pilot your time machine to, and what do you see when you uh, step out of it? Well, uh, where you pilot it to is one of the fraught questions of uh, history, so you get to sort of map it. Also, I'm going to uh, leave a memo on the desk of Time Incorporated to say, what is your deal with the magical tree chopping down thing? Do you just... <laughs> they, they do have a consistent... Well, when they, they saved the uh, Holy Tree of Buddhism, they uh, then realized that... Uh, there were other trees that could possibly be saved, and uh, equal time, yeah, for for Saxon paganism. Yeah. All right. The uh, the question of where exactly the Irman Sewell is is a is is a fraught question because again, it's not like Charlemagne left a a, a big note saying, "Hey, come, come back here and, and worship here. stuff." So, so there's uh there, there's it might have been in the Teutoburg Wald where the uh, the the Germans threw off the Roman yoke back in. Uh, in 9 AD, or it might have been somewhere else. It might have been at the Exensterna, which is a sort of stone uh, rock formation that uh, people carved all manner of Christian uh, imagery into, possibly to cover up the filthy pagan past of it. And if there was a filthy pagan past, that filthy pagan past might or might not have been the Irmansul. The Irmansul might have even been a Roman column uh, that was put up by the Romans to say, the Rhine is ours and don't cross it, you filthy Saxons. Uh, which would be an interesting change. Uh, so it, it's it's kind of hard to say uh, what, but where the where the Airman Sewell was. So I guess my job one would be to go back to probably, um, you know, the the 
beginning of the 8th century and look around and find the Ermansul so that when I come back closer to Charlemagne times, uh, I know where I'm going. Right. So the first time you get in your Saxon garb Mm -hmm. and you uh, head to where Saxons are and you say, hey, who's going to the Ermansul? And uh, you get there and then you find out which... Right. (laughs) And so you now know which of the possibilities uh, uh, that you just mentioned of uh, locations and configurations we're talking about. Uh, So you know where it is. Uh, and uh, uh, are there any things that you uh, want to find out about uh, Saxons uh, in that first stage that uh, might be ancillary to your mission, but you're curious about? I mean, the, a lot of people want to know stuff like, you know, who they were worshipping, what their, uh, what what the nature of, of uh, pre-Christian German paganism is, because with the exception of Tacitus, everyone who wrote about it was Christian. And so there's some probably inevitable degree of, uh, distortion that's inherent when someone who's not sympathetic to a worldview writes a history of the worldview. So right. the, or even just outside, or even worldview. outside it. Yes, and, and so there's 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 questions to be answered. For example, is it Zeus or is it Tiu or is it Odin that you're worshiping there at the Ermansul, or is it some other thing? Is it a lady? Because of course the um, uh, the Canaanites had uh, pillars that represented a girl goddess, the Asherah, and so maybe it's a maybe it's a girl pillar. Although that would go against the simple. Jungian um, uh, symbolism of pillars, I guess. Yes, it's, in general, you don't associate the Axis Mundi with uh, female power. Yes, although, again, I suspect that's because of the pernicious influence of Joseph Campbell, uh, not because of anything that people do or don't do. But the right. Sometimes um, a pillar is just a pillar. Sometimes it's just a pillar. It's a convenient way to represent a tree, because trees right. fall over a lot. Um, anyway, so the pillar... Um, sort of finding out what it is that the that the Saxons believed would be worth it, I think, just to sort of watch a, a ceremony the Ehrman Soul at some point that was um, uh, that was uh, early enough that you don't have to worry about Charlemagne coming by and chopping it down. Um, and the problem with stopping Charlemagne from chopping it down, first of all, there is that treasure thing, and second, the Saxons are kind of asking for it because they keep going into Charlemagne country and burning down churches and. That's the sort of thing that gets your pillar chopped down when the guy whose churches you're burning outnumbers you uh, substantially and has all the armor. <laughs> so maybe your mission is to uh, spirit Ehrman's soul away afterwards. So that uh... so what 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 side do you go then? Do you try and uh, convince the Saxons to uh, stop asking for it? Well, I mean, the thing is that obviously, if you can con- if you can convert the Saxon king Vidukind, who is the guy who makes Charlemagne's life a miserable living hell for about uh, 13 or a dozen years. Uh, if you can convert him before the chopping down of the Ermansul, and you have him say, let's turn this Ermansul from a pagan pillar into a Christian pillar by putting a magical lamp on it, and, and it represents the, the light that was shining for the children of Israel. Or you put a crossbar on it and it represents Jesus or something. Right, because otherwise you sort of chop it down himself. Chop it down anyway, right? So you 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 want Vidukind, ideally, to recognize that um, uh, uh, Christianity is the way to be, stop burning down churches, but also... You get to keep your airman soul, and you don't have to knuckle under to Charlemagne. And that, I think, is one of those things that uh, potentially is possible with, uh, you know, the the, the, the the lights on the outside of the time machine and a, and a few well-chosen words about um, uh, one's fellow man over a deep glass of uh, much stronger than he is used to uh, uh, brandy. And, and how much earlier would that then put their conversion to Christianity? Well, Vidikin converts as part of the peace agreement. So it's only it, it only moves the conversion, you know, a, a dozen years ahead. So that's no big whoop to the timeline. Not not a giant whoop to the timeline, except if it creates a presumption that there will be Christian kingdoms outside the Holy Roman Empire, besides Britain, which is of course its own special and magical uh, case. But part of the reason that Charlemagne gets to be the Holy Roman Emperor is that when he is that. There are virtually no Christian states outside his rule uh, that are also outside the Roman Communion. Uh, Naples is its own thing, and there's some uh, maybe some some questionable bits uh, uh, in northern Spain. But virtually every civilized country that's Catholic is under Charlemagne, and this notion of a unified empire of the West. I don't know that just an independent Saxony takes it away, but. Saxony is not a trivial country. It's a big chunk of Germany, and it's a big chunk of Germany's population. Because remember, they've sent about half of their young men over to England to turn it Anglo-Saxon. And uh, just between you, me, and the fence post, the Angles aren't really doing the heavy lifting here. (laughs) 
or between you, me, and the airman soul, I guess I should say. Yes. Uh, so the, the notion of an independent Christian Saxony would be an interesting one to see how long it lasts. Uh, and because the thing about Charlemagne is he dies, he leaves his kingdom to his three sons jointly, and of course that comes apart almost instantaneously. So if Saxony stays independent through Charlemagne's reign, it probably gets to stay independent moving forward. Now, Saxony is also one of the bases of the later Holy Roman Emperor, Empire, uh, the, 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 Ho- the Velfs and the Hohenstaufens, when they, uh, when they join up to, to beat on the Magyars and uh, save Europe from another uh, bad ravage. And so maybe you just sort of move the thing over. But I, I, I have to wonder if the symbolism isn't pretty important at that point. That uh, that the the lack of a single unified empire, but maybe it isn't. Maybe it's just a thing. And as part of being a Christian, since uh, Vidukind has got to uh, make nice with the Pope, maybe making nice with Charlemagne is part of that anyway. But at least he keeps his airman soul and he keeps uh, a huge number of his people alive. And he probably gets to farm his own. Uh, his, his the Saxons get to farm their own land and don't have to uh, truckle to a bunch of tax collecting jerks from Belgium. So that's sounding like your uh, best option, but it doesn't have you hanging around with Charlemagne. Uh, is there a, an option that you've examined that has you trying to convince Charlemagne to uh, leave the Irmin soul alone? Well, I mean, once uh, Vidukind is, turns Christian, convincing Charlemagne can be part of the job. Right. I don't think you can convince Charlemagne to leave a powerful pagan state on his north flank, or his northeast flank, um, and I'm not sure that you'd want to, because what if you've accidentally wrecked civilization and extend the Dark Ages by another hundred years. And that's not something that you necessarily want to do either. Uh, Charlemagne's court is pretty great um, for what it is, uh, but what it is is not, you know, if, if I'm going to just hang out somewhere to hang out somewhere in the 8th century AD, it's going to be Byzantium or it's going to be Muslim Spain, because those are where you have, you know, hot baths and more than four books <laughs> and other things that I uh, value, uh, even as a time traveler. But Charlemagne would be a neat guy to uh, to sort of uh, get to know, because the great question, you know, like, like, like with all these guys, how much of this is the Holy Spirit, you know, in their mind, and how much of it is just well, I'm the king of something, so I have to stab everyone I can reach until I die. I vote 97% B. <laughs> I, I think that uh, that is our that's our answer now in a secular age, but when you talk about being outside someone's tradition and trying to explain them, um, that works for Charlemagne just like it works for pagan Saxony. Right, because posing that as a dichotomy is, of right. course, making a mistake because you uh, move ineluctably from A to B and they're the same in your mind as your... Because what's, uh, what's the fun of... Uh, killing a whole bunch of dudes who are threatening you if you can't also feel self-righteous about it. And, or, conversely, what's the fun of of defending uh, Christendom if it doesn't uh, actually defend Christendom, right? If, if you're not... If you're killing a bunch of people for no reason, that would seem kind of pointless when you could be killing Muslims. Uh, and so killing pagans is sort of like... It's got to be second best, I would think. Uh, so if you... Um, time travel stories often end up where if there's somebody famous in the area where you're time traveling to... Even if you're not intending to meet them, you wind up, uh, something goes wrong, and you end up meeting them by accident. So you are uh, probably imprisoned uh, partway through your adventure and uh, held captive by Charlemagne, who wants to uh, speak to this uh, funny-accented Saxon who he fears might be a strange new prophet who might come along and need to be reckoned with. So uh, in the process of uh, talking your way out of that, what do you... uh, discover about Charlemagne? What kind of guy is he? Well, he's very tall. Um, that's something that uh, not a lot of people are then. Um, he's also, he's got a, he, he's one of those people who loves scholarship without actually knowing anything about it. So he's sort of like everyone on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, um, he has a, his buddy is an Englishman, Al- Alquin of York. Um, and so Alquin of York is one of those guys who is probably on my side of don't kill all the Saxons. Uh, partially because Alquin is a Saxon <laughs> by blood, since he's an Englishman, um, and so he has—he's uh, got a, a kind of an interesting perspective on it. And I think that comparing notes with him might be a, a part of all three parts of that plan. The part where I say, "Hey, Alquin, any hints on getting your fellow Saxons to, you know, accept Jesus?" And conversely, any hints on getting uh, Charlemagne to settle for not chopping down the Irmin soul? And Full on, you know, seriously, only four books and no hot baths. What kind of country is this? <laughs> four books. Um, when I grew up, four books. What? 
Um, also, you'd want to meet Roland, right? You'd want to find out about the, the, the Horn of Roland and, and all that. Was there a Roland? What about all of his other paladins? Um, you know, you've got uh, all the all the guys who are out there doing the King Arthur thing, uh, Avant La Lettre and uh, post the King Arthur. You know, that would be interesting to know, you know, and to what extent are figures like uh, Olger Danska, I mean, there's probably not a Dane in his court, but there might be. There are Danes by then. They've They've just about to go out and start slaughtering people, um, so there's there's got to be Danes sitting around somewhere, um, and and so what are, what do his what do his tame Danes think about all this uh, 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 proto Vikingry that's going on? That would be kind of an inter- interesting question to ask. I just think that the the period of Charlemagne it's not my favorite part of the Dark Ages. I'm uh, a little fonder of the Adel of the Hun era, just because the um, it's closer to classical civilization. But uh, you know Charlemagne. I think that he gave it a good college try. He got really overpraised for it, and now the temptation is to underpraise him. But you know, no one else was doing anything uh, uh, constructive to the extent that slaughtering everyone on your borders is a constructive thing to do. And he he uh, also um, he tried to get architecture going again, which you have to rec- uh, recognize if you're an architecture fan. He realized that living in a dumpy hovel was not the way to be, and he wanted to try and reinvent Roman architecture. So that's where Romanesque begins, is with Charlemagne saying, uh, seriously, let's try and build the Pantheon so I can live in it. And everyone's saying, we don't have circle technology anymore, Charlemagne. <laughs> we, we must recover the circle. <laughs> so uh, I think that pretty much uh, covers it. Is there anything else you want to include in your report to Time Incorporated before you uh, uh, use your time machine for recreational purposes? Um, well, I think that you also want to, uh, take a, a drop off in the 1930s and, uh, screw with the Ananerba when they're going around claiming that the Airman Soul is such and such a place. I think it might be fun to leave a bunch of, um, uh, fake artifacts or, uh, conversely just sort of show up right after they've published their big book and publish my big book saying, uh, actually it was the next hill over and there was, uh, tons of Jews there. Right. You want to inscribe a bunch of Star of, of David's on it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that, uh, well handles that mission and therefore this podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Scale Realms. OdysseyCon 15. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Palgrain Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Keep our effects special by hitting the donate button at KenandRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such munificent patrons as George Freitas. Build awareness of your game, Kickstarter, book, or world tree by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. Catch us both at CthulhuCon in Portland, Oregon. April 25th and 26th. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.